If you have your Bible, you can start making your way over to the book of Romans. We'll be picking up today where we left off last time. But did any of you see the news story this past week about the doomsday clock? You're thinking, well, no, because that's negative news and I try to avoid it. Or, you know, or, well, I don't look at real news, I look at all the fake news, or, you know, whatever your thing is about news. But the doomsday clock was created back in 1947 by the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, a group of scientists who worked on the Manhattan Project, the code name for the development of the atomic bomb in World War II. The clock attempts to gauge how close humanity is to destroying itself. And this past week, the hands of the clock were moved forward to just 90 seconds before midnight. Midnight represents the moment that the earth will become uninhabitable by human beings. This is the closest the clock has ever been to the doomsday moment. Well, taking into consideration the ongoing war in Ukraine and the other unrest in other parts of the world, environmental issues, the financial turmoils, the human rights protests, and all the rest of it, the president of the bulletin said, quote, we are living in a time of unprecedented danger. And so they've moved the clock to just 90 seconds before doomsday moment. Well, in the section of the letter of Romans, which we have been looking at last week, and then what we will be looking at again this week, Paul makes the case that the human race is sinful and broken and in need of God's rescue. We are a harm to ourselves and to one another. The doomsday clock is evidence of the truth of this. We, as the human race, have brought ourselves to the brink of annihilation. This is not something that God has done to us. It's not something that some alien race from a distant planet has done to us. This is something that we have done to ourselves. There's no one to shift the blame to. This is all our own doing. Well, Before diving into the text of the passage today, I want to make sure we all have a basic grasp of the terminology that Paul will be using when referring to people. And he uses this terminology throughout the letter. But in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, all people, all people are divided into just two groups, Jews and non-Jews, what the Bible calls Gentiles. There are Jews and there are Gentiles. If you are not a Jew, then you are a Gentile. So if you're sitting here right now, you go, well, which group am I in? If you're not a Jew, then you are a Gentile by default. Okay? Now, this might sound odd to say in the pluralistic society that we live in today, but there are, to, to hear that, you know, that there are only two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles, but that is the culture within which the Bible was written. When reading the Old Testament portion of the Bible, you will notice that the Jews are the people group that are being addressed and being talked about the vast majority of the time. The Jews are the descendants of Abraham through his son Isaac and then through his son Jacob. God chose these people to reveal himself through in a very special way. Through Moses... 
God gave the Jewish people the book of the law, the Torah, which are the first five books in the Old Testament of the Bible. This law was the basis for the Jewish people to build their whole culture and society. The law establishes right and wrong behavior, their system of justice, the religious system that they would use and do use to carry out a relationship with God. Jesus Christ was a Jew. Paul was a Jew, as were all of the original apostles. Okay, so Jews and Gentiles, and we'll be talking about Jews and Gentiles today. We talked about them last week, too, and I, I just want to make sure everybody understands who Jews and who Gentiles are in a general sense. So by way of review, in the last half of Romans chapter 1, from verses 18 through 32, which we looked at last time, Paul makes the case that all Gentile people are guilty before God and without excuse. God has made himself known in understandable ways through the creation itself to all people, and yet people have pushed God out of their lives. Rather than worshiping God, they have chosen to worship themselves and other created things. So God gave them over to their sin, giving them what they want, letting them reap the natural consequences of their choices and actions. He has let their sin create its own punishment. Their choices and behaviors have led them further and further into the degrading, the dishonoring, the humiliating, the mistreating, the devaluing of themselves and each other. Well, in the next section of the letter, which runs from Romans chapter 2, verse 1, through Romans chapter 3, verse 20, big section, Paul addresses people who think all of the stuff that he talked about in Romans 1, 18 through 32 was intended for somebody else. He confronts those who feel morally and spiritually superior to these other people. In Paul's day, the Jewish people would have been the ones most likely to feel superior since most of the sins that Paul mentioned were much more common in the Gentile cultures of the day than the Jewish culture. The Jewish people, they had been raised with the benefit of the written word of God, and they had this legacy of Jewish culture and moral expectations to draw from. This doesn't mean that only Jewish people struggle with feeling superior to others morally and spiritually. That is actually something that all people, whether Jewish or Gentile, struggle with and have troubles with. In our own day, for example, church-going people are those who most likely feel superior to others, having the benefit of growing up in a Christian home and being taught the values in the Bible. Well, we looked at the first four verses of Romans chapter 2 last time in closing, where Paul introduces the idea that no matter who we are, we are guilty before God, we are on the wrong side of His righteousness, and we need His grace and mercy, no matter who we are, Jew or Gentile. Well, today, Paul continues this same theme in the next verses, building his case against those who feel religiously and morally superior to others, ending with his summarizing statement that we find in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, where he says, therefore, the big summarizing word, therefore, 
no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin or we become aware of sin and its existence in us. Now, the law that Paul is talking about, we need to talk about a terminology again here for a sec. The law Paul is talking about is not the laws of our country or our government. He's talking about the law of God, which he gave through Moses to the Jewish people and what we have in our Bible as the Old Testament. Paul is addressing Jewish people in large part in this section of the letter, but much of what he will be teaching, it can be applied to virtually anyone who's trying to justify themselves before God by being a good person. So for context and continuity of thought, I, I want to begin by reading again the first four verses of Romans chapter 2 before getting into the rest of the passage. So Romans 2, verse 1 says, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. As we noted before, Paul doesn't identify who you is here, but when we get down to verse 17 of this chapter, we see that he's referring to the Jews in large part. However, as we just said a moment ago, all of us can be guilty of having this kind of self-righteous attitude. When we have a self-righteous attitude, judging and condemning others, we're showing contempt, he says, for we are despising, we're questioning, we're thinking inappropriate and unjustified God's kindness, tolerance, and patience, failing to realize that God's kindness is intended to lead all of us to repentance. See, we all want God's kindness and patience to be extended to us, but when we judge and condemn others, we're saying, in effect, that we don't think this other person should receive the same kindness and patience that God is showing us. See, that's how we show contempt for it. And that is a very dangerous attitude to have. Over in Matthew 7, verse 1 and 2, you might remember Jesus said this. He said, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. See, so it is to our great advantage to measure out mercy and kindness in hugely generous portions to others. Right? Because the measure we use will be measured back to us. Now, I want to say quickly, uh, my approach to this section of Scripture that we'll be looking at today is I, I want to give you a heads up that we're going to be covering a lot of verses today in our study. This is a Bible study today, and I'm trying to make it as painless as possible, but, but 
In order to, to, to capture what Paul's saying here, we need to look at this whole big chunk at once. We're going to be covering a lot of verses because I want to maintain our focus on the big idea of the passage rather than descending into details and side roads and lose track of that. It's easy to misunderstand what Paul is saying in this passage here if we do that, okay? So hang in there. I know it's going to be rough today, but there's just, there's just no way around it if we are Bible students. So let's begin in verse 5 of Romans 2. It says, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. When we first read these verses, it might appear that Paul is contradicting himself. I mean, earlier in the letter, in chapter 1, verses 17, or 16 and 17 in particular, Paul has told us already that salvation is by faith. Now it sounds like he's saying we're saved by being good. Well, first, we need to give Paul a little more credit. He's not foolish enough to contradict himself in such a gross way, just one chapter over in a letter that's really not that big of a document. So what's going on here? What is Paul saying? We need to keep in mind the larger context of this letter and the whole of the New Testament and not get lost in the details of the immediate verses and mislead ourselves. Paul is describing for us here the judgment of God against all people. He will judge everyone by how we have lived our life. It says in verse 6, God will repay each person according to what they have done. Those who have lived a good and righteous life will be rewarded with eternal life. And for those who have lived a self-seeking sinful life, there will be trouble and distress, it tells us in verse 9. God will not show any favoritism in His judgment of people. Both Jews and Gentiles will be judged by God in the same way. Now, here's the question that comes to mind at this point. Are there any people who have lived a good and righteous life, making them worthy to be rewarded with eternal life? The short answer is no. No one. There is no one who has ever been good enough, long enough to deserve salvation. Paul's going to continue with this line of argument through the rest of Romans chapter 2 and into the first half of Romans chapter 3, which we'll be looking at here in a moment. But I want to stop here and jump ahead to the end of the section to set all of this into its larger context for his overall presentation and for the 
benefit of our understanding of what he's talking about. The conclusion, where Paul pulls everything together here and he gives us the bottom line is this, that there is no human being who has ever lived up to the righteous standard of God, making them worthy of salvation and eternal life. Never been one. But God has not abandoned us to such a hopeless fate. He offers to give us the righteousness that we need through faith in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Let's look. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to us, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall shorty, short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. We need to keep this in mind as we move through this passage. Verse 12 then. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Okay, so let me summarize the big idea of what he's saying here. Remember first that the law that Paul's talking about here is not the laws of our government. He's talking about the law of God given through Moses to the Jewish people and what we have in our Bible in the Old Testament. Many of the Jews assumed that they were safe because the law had been given to them. They reasoned, we are God's chosen people to whom he has given his law. We are certainly in God's good graces and we will go to heaven because of that. But Paul reminds us that it's not those who have been given the law who are righteous, but it is those who do the law. Knowing the right way to live is not a substitute for actually living the right way. That seems pretty obvious. So Paul uses Gentiles, people who do not know the law, as an example to illustrate his point. He says if people who don't know the law are practicing the kind of behavior taught in the law, then they are obviously living rightly before God, even though they don't have the law. And so, knowing the right way to live is not a substitute for actually living the right way. Verse 17 now. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior, because you are 
instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So to summarize this, Paul, he continues to confront the Jewish person who is taking pride in their Jewishness, thinking that being a Jew is enough to make them right before God. Paul, he lists here these benefits that the Jewish person has because the law of God has been given to them. You know the will of God. These are all things that the law of God, the scripture provides for the person who has it. You know the will of God. You are able to distinguish right from wrong. You are a guide to the spiritually and morally blind. You are a light for those lost in darkness. You are an instructor of the foolish and the ignorant because the law contains in it the embodiment of knowledge and truth. But here's the rub, he says. Are they putting the law into practice in their life? Paul fires off a series of questions to confront them on that issue. He says, while teaching others the right way to live, are you not doing these things yourself? While preaching against stealing, are you stealing? While telling others they shouldn't commit adultery, are you committing adultery? While telling others to stay away from idols, are you a slave to money? While feeling good about your religion, are you dishonoring God by not practicing it? Well, those of us who call ourselves Christians, we, we should take these same kinds of questions to heart, shouldn't we? Are we practicing what we are preaching? And the honest and humble person will have to say, I'm not practicing these things as well as I should. Lord, have mercy on me. And may I extend mercy to others, recognizing my own shortcomings, rather than being judgmental of them. Well, he continues in verse 25. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements while they do what... Let me say, so then, if they who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as those as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Paul confronts now the Jewish person about circumcision. He uses the same kind of argument here as he did earlier in verses 12 through 16, actually. 
Circumcision is one of the most important and sacred religious rituals practiced by Jews. Circumcision for the Jewish man is a physical sign on his body that he is in covenant relationship with God. He is the Lord's. Well, no matter how important this religious rite might be, if the circumcised person is not living the kind of life that circumcision signifies, well, then that person is as though they're not circumcised at all. Simply following the outward signs and rituals of religion do not make a person right with God. Our religious commitments, they must come from within and impact our whole person. And it's not just Jewish people who were guilty of depending on the external practicing of their religion to make them right with God. I mean, we find similar thing taking place in our own day, don't we, among people who call themselves Christians. People get baptized, they get married in the church, they attend church at least on Christmas and Easter. They have a Bible somewhere in the house. They like social media memes about God and the Bible and so on. But when you scratch beneath the surface, you are hard-pressed to find any evidence of real, genuine faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, is not the driving energy in their attitudes and their behavior. Instead, they are self-centered, greedy, judgmental, jealous, controlled by their passions, materialistic. There's no distinguishing between them and anybody else. Well, at this point, the Jewish person is wondering, well, what good is it to be a Jew if being a Jew doesn't get you any meaningful advantages with God? This is what Paul addresses in the next verses, Romans 3, verse 1. He says, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some, of, what if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar as it it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. Paul says it's no small thing to be the people entrusted with the word of God, the law, the scriptures, to be a Jew. The Lord selected the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Jewish people, to be his special people and to reveal himself to all the world through them. This is a tremendous blessing. But does the unfaithfulness and the failure of people nullify the faithfulness of God? Of course not, he says. God remains faithful and true no matter what. And so verse 5. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument, he says. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's 
truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result? Their condemnation is just. Okay, you read that and you go, what? I'm sure. He says, some might try to argue, as crazy as it might sound, they might try to argue that since their sinfulness brings out God's goodness more clearly for everyone to see, then why does God condemn them? I mean, by their way of thinking, God is benefiting from my sinfulness. I should be rewarded for my sinning rather than condemned for it because I'm making God look good. This argument is so ridiculous that Paul simply says their condemnation is just. But let me illustrate to show the craziness of their thinking. Let's imagine that I borrowed Greg's car. Which Greg? I don't know. There's like three of them in our church, so you can pick whichever one you want. And while driving down the freeway, a guy cut me off. In a fit of rage, I chased the guy down, and I ran Greg's car into the back of this other guy's car. I end up totaling both cars in the process and going to jail for reckless endangerment. Greg, out of the kindness of his heart, pays for all of the damage to both cars, bails me out of jail, and then pays the lawyer fees for getting all charges against me dropped. Yeah, Greg's a nice guy. See? When word gets out about what Greg has done for me, he's thought of as the most generous, cool person in the city. He receives honors and accolades from the mayor, and he's honored as the guest at the next 4th of July parade. Well, I see all that, and I reason in my mind, well, if my foolish act of rage brought all of that honor to Greg, well, then I should borrow his car again and do something even more severe and stupid with it. That way, he will be honored even more. And you would promptly put me in a straitjacket and lock me up in a padded room, and rightly so. Because that's crazy. And that is the argument that Paul was confronting. Verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. So Paul, he quotes from several Old Testament passages which state in shocking terms the utter depravity of humanity, both Jews and Gentiles. And no commentary is needed. It's all true. It's all true. We as a race are a train wreck. 
Lord, have mercy on us. And so Paul brings this section to a conclusion in verse 19 and 20. It says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. He brings this to a conclusion. The whole world, he says, both Jews and Gentiles are accountable to God. All are guilty. No one is righteous in God's sight when judged by their own behavior. Verse 20 says, the only advantage that the law provides is making us conscious of sin. It it, it helps us to see sin in ourself, and it presses home to us our inability to live up to the righteous requirements of holy God. One commentator says, it is the straight edge of the law that shows us how crooked we are. If this is where the story ends, then we have no hope. We're just waiting for the doomsday clock to strike midnight. We've been told that no one, no matter who they are, is able to justify their self before God and and earn an entrance into His presence to receive salvation and eternal life. The, The popular idea in our culture that a person gets to heaven by being a good person is absolutely false because none of us can be good enough, long enough for that to ever happen. But the story doesn't end there. In closing, I want us to read the next few verses. They give us hope and remind us of the very important life-changing truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That it is not our righteousness that we depend upon, but it is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we would be certainly doomed. Romans 3.21 says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify, This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. So that big old section that we've looked at today was all to bring us to this point. Hopefully, we have all heard the important truth. We can't save ourselves. God knows that much better than we do. And He's offered to save us. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank You It's not easy for us to hear the truth about ourselves. But we all know it's true. We all live with ourselves. We know what's really inside of us. We know the thoughts. We know the attitudes. We know the actions. 
We thank you, Lord, that you have rescued us. You so loved us that you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, to save us from ourself and from one another. If we will trust you, put our faith in Jesus, take hold of Jesus Christ and depend on him, humble ourselves before you, Lord. I pray, Lord, that we have all done that, and I pray that this week we would be encouraged and comforted in the precious truth that we are saved not because of what we have done, but because of what you have done. In Jesus' name, amen.